Welcome to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So Liz. Yes. Since we have so much to cover and we have a very special guest today, um, I'm going to throw this 80s question to our friend Molly Hemingway, who everyone knows. She doesn't need a description. Editor-in-chief of the Federalist Fox News contributor. Um, just overall good gal. Molly, are you ready for the 80s quiz? Not at all, but I'm, but go for it. Now, I know you and Mark are big music aficionados, so this should be easy. On this date, 1987, I know you're only 10 years old, you 2 released their hit single, What? The lead single from their fifth studio album, The Joshua Tree. Okay, I have, so I'm actually not a big um, U2 fan. Ditto. But I, Good. That album. Yuck. Wait, that sounds really bad that I just said that. That'll get me like so much hate mail. I recognize that they're really talented, but I don't really remember that. Hold on. I can, can just give me a minute. This is not good to say, hold on, give me a, um, <laughs> give me a minute. It's their biggest hit off the album, probably their biggest hit of all time. Well, it's not where the streets have no name, but that's the one I'm thinking of. And is it with or without you? Is it with or without you? Yes, Liz. Liz is correct, Molly. I'm sorry. Okay. That was a good effort. Well, I can't believe I forgot that because that was like the first slow dance song I ever danced to at my junior <laughs> high school dance. Like I, it's 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 like so deep in my memory. I should have remembered it. But for some reason, I didn't realize that was on Joshua Tree. So can I just say in defense of Molly's music knowledge, one of the first times I ever went to Molly's house, we ever went over there. I walked in and she was playing an album. Molly has a prolific album collection and she was playing Cabaret Voltaire. And I knew that we would be friends. Oh my gosh. That's, That's why. I, love, I always think Cabaret Voltaire. I mean, nobody really knows who they are except for people who like bands. Bands always liked Cabaret Voltaire, which is how I think I first found them. Not They were not being played on the radio, you know, but I would always read these interviews where people were very inspired by that band. So I love that you. Underrated, underrated band. Underrated. That's all I have to say. Mm-hmm. Never heard of them. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have a lot to cover. So much happening as always. Um, Molly, we're going to let you start with what you think is the most interesting, uncovered or uh, revelatory news that came out this week. So I think the most interesting thing that happened was that Tucker Carlson asked all the current or prospective nominees or candidates for the Republican nomination six questions about Ukraine. It just is really good journalism to ask not just one question, but six questions, get everybody's feedback. He got a wide variety of responses and all of them were interesting. Um, President Trump's answers were really solid and exactly you know, what you'd expect given how his foreign policy was as president. But what surprised everybody was how strong Ron DeSantis's answer was, where he talked about having a foreign policy in the shockingly, you know, in the U.S. national interest and understanding whether something serves our interest or not and whether escalating a proxy war with Russia serves our interest. And it was his clearest comments to date that suggest he does not agree with the Biden Mitch McConnell approach to the Ukraine war. I think the media and also um, 
just DeSantis haters were really trying to prop him up like just another neocon that he was, you know, another warmonger. So I think it's great that he got in front of this before that went very far, because I think that is a lot of people were curious, you know, DeSantis had been a congressman, but what was his foreign policy, especially since Biden's got us in a big international mess. And so it was good for him. And, you know, kudos again to Tucker. We're fans of Tucker here. Everyone's a fan of Tucker for doing just a basic journalistic effort, which would be to canvas the, you know, leading candidates or all the really all the candidates, because he talked to Nikki Haley and she's certainly not leading candidate. Um, But and ask them, hey, what 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 is your uh, position on this? war that Biden has gotten us into with Russia. And it was very enlightening to see the results. They were, I think, most. were you surprised by anyone? Julie, were you surprised by any of them? Or did they all kind of land where you thought they would land? Um, no, I wasn't really surprised by the answers. Maybe Molly can explain exactly uh, what DeSantis said, because then that ignited a firestorm of the establishment uh, neocon uh, war mongers. So um, what exactly did he say? Called it a territorial dispute. I know that. And um, yes. what else specifically did he say? A lot of people got upset that he called it a territorial dispute. I actually had no problem with that. I, I understand that some people can think that means he's downplaying the badness of Russia's inv- invasion of Ukraine. But if you know anything about the region, the you know, like the last hundred years, it, it's, it actually makes sense why he would call it a territorial dispute. I would recommend Mario Loyola wrote a piece for The Federalist about a year ago when the invasion happened, you know, very critical of Russia, but also explaining the, how it's got a nature of a territorial dispute. And knowing that, it just helps you do better strategy in how to take on Russia. When you understand the strategic interest that Russia has and how it's kind of existential for them, it makes you understand that even if you were to you know, do what neocons want of deposing Putin and replacing him with someone else. It wouldn't really make the issue go away. It's a it's an issue that at the breakup of the Soviet Union, very wise American minds were talking about how to try to avoid this kind of eventuality. And in the in the minds of the George H.W. Bush administration, it was all about helping Ukraine understand it needed to be a buffer between Russia and the West as opposed to what we ended up doing, which was turn it into a vassal state of ours and how that has maybe not served their interest very well. The neocon freakout was fascinating because a couple of weeks ago, Ron DeSantis said something you know, kind of off the cuff in a Fox interview where he said, I just don't understand what the strategy is that Biden has. Like, what's what's the goal here? What's the strategy? How are we going to do this? I'm nervous about it. And the neocon pushback was immediate, like, Daniel Pletka, who's over at AEI, which is a big, you know, sort of failed neocon think tank. She went after him in the New York Post and she's like, oh, dear God, is he another J.D. Vance or even worse, is he a younger, smarter Donald Trump? And I just want to say here real quick, you saw this in Nikki Haley's attack on Ron DeSantis after his answer. You saw this in The Wall Street Journal today. They said he was being Trumpy. The idea that it's an insult to say that your foreign policy is like the most successful president in decades foreign policy. The one guy who didn't get us into any new wars, the one guy who like actually understood that you can use the military in a really decisive way without 
getting embedded into a 20 year war, but he also understood how you can use the economic tools or diplomatic tools to avoid war. The idea that it's an insult to say you're like that guy is laughable to me. But they really tried to, you know, kind of throw a pitch at his head a couple of weeks ago and be like, you cannot go down this road of rejecting neoconservatism. And they claimed that if you reject neoconservatism, you're rejecting Republican foreign policy, which is absurd because neoconservatism was this like brief detour around the Bush era that's totally different than Republican foreign policy. It's more like Wilsonian progressive foreign policy. And they they were like, don't do this. And so when he came out even stronger, they lost their minds. And it's kind of been delightful to watch. It's kind of crazy because um, the idea that trying not to get into war is just shameful thing is to shame someone for saying for taking a position that we shouldn't really be into war. But just to your earlier point, almost every war in the history of the world is a territorial dispute. I mean, they're arguing over look at the Middle East, right? I mean, look at Israel. That's, you know, been the the middle of there's they're fighting over territory. So, you know, the idea that this was this exotic, crazy answer from DeSantis is ridiculous. But I didn't I did enjoy the meltdown. Julie, what are your what are your thoughts on uh, DeSantis here? Well, there I am. Of course, I'm always interested in what our craven rep- senators, uh, Republican senators have to say to anything. Of course, last week they humiliated themselves, including Mitch McConnell denouncing Tucker Carlson for airing legitimate security footage from January 6th. It's not like he went and made it up and recreated what happened that day and someone else was playing Jacob Chansley. I mean, it was legit. So they denounced them, embarrassed themselves again this week. Here's a quick roundup uh, of what some Republican senators said. Roger Wicker, I completely disagree with his comments. Kevin Kramer, who, uh, why is that? He's like the new, he's like a Mitch McConnell mini. I can't stand that guy. Kevin Kramer last seen uh, commending Michael Byrd for executing Ashley Babbitt, says Ukraine, it's in our interests. Lindsey Graham, of course, this is a war of aggression. Marco Rubio, he doesn't deal with foreign policy every day. Okay, Marco. John Thune, I have a different view on that than he does. Tom Tuberville, Tuberville, they're a vital interest. We're basically protecting NATO and Europe. Kennedy, what's his first name? John, not John. John. John Kennedy. I've looked at it as self-preservation. I tried to do my best imitation. What did we do to deserve these people, Molly? Why are we saddled (laughs) with such clowns? So I think it really, I like that they're all kind of outing themselves as being so closely aligned with the Biden foreign policy, even as Republican voters are more and more expressing distrust of that foreign policy. You know, every time a war starts or you see something unjust happen and it very unjust what Russia's doing to Ukraine. You get a lot of support for doing something. You know, we got to do something. But what we have not seen from our leadership in D.C. in both parties for several decades is the kind of statesmanship and strategic thinking that marked generations prior to the one that's currently in leadership. You know, Ronald Reagan won the Cold War along with, you know, I think George H.W. Bush also had a good role to play there in part by having really smart people thinking through when to be aggressive, when not to be aggressive, when to talk to adversaries, when to be tough. You know, it's not it it requires a lot of smartness that our current leadership class doesn't have. 
And the people who are in power in the Senate right now in the Republican Party really came into being during that George W. Bush era. And it's like they're the last people to get the news that the Iraq and Afghanistan, the management of those wars or even the entry into the Iraq war wasn't actually so hot. Like they just haven't really figured it out how politically toxic it was, how it led to a weakening of the U.S. position globally. And they're just they're just like decrepit ancient people who don't have any relationship with the average Republican voter. And so the average Republican voter does want a very strong defense and they want us to use our military when we need to. And they understand that China is a really big adversary that we should be preparing for. And at no point have Biden or McConnell made the case for how escalating a war in Ukraine with a big nuclear power, you know, they have 6,500 nuclear warheads, how how escalating that war, or even like the manner in which they're running it, how that serves the U.S. interest. And they just keep thinking that if they say it's in the U.S. interest, that that's sufficient. And the American voters, after the failures of the neocons in recent decades, aren't as gullible as we were, you know, right after 9-11. I thought it was really peculiar that I saw headlines that were like DeSantis breaks with GOP on Ukraine. And I'm thinking, which GOP are you talking about the Senate? Because I don't think that the Republicans and I'm sure there's been polling and I can't think of it, it off the top of my head that suggests that the majority of Republicans are not in favor of this like war or at least half of them. I, I do think a lot of those polls are asking incorrect formulated questions to get a certain kind of answer. But but you do make a good point, which is where is the diplomacy? Why aren't we brokering a peace accord? I mean, why, why didn't we do that a year ago when this started? Why didn't we go and say, what do we need to do to work this out instead of, I think this is one of the few times the U.S. has just blatantly entered a war, like, and they say they're not at war, but if we weren't backing Ukraine, the war would be over. You know, the is as poorly as Russia has shown itself in this war. The fact is Ukraine is in a worse position. And if we weren't giving them intel and other arms and billions of dollars, well, people in East Palestine are, you know, rotting from the inside from chemical spills with nothing, then this war would have been over a long time ago. So very disgusting. There's no end game. How do you see this end? Molly or Julie, what do you guys think? Do you think do you think this is going to keep going? Is this going to be another forever war? I do want to just say really quickly on the polling, whenever a war starts, like the first 30 days of a war are when you get the best numbers. And I was actually kind of surprised at just how much there was American support for entering another war without a strategy for what we were doing there. But it started falling almost immediately. And it fell in ways that were that made sense. They're like, well, we're happy to support Ukraine as they resist this unjust aggression from Russia. But we don't want to be doing it more than like their actual neighbors are. You know, this is a European right. war. Europe has a ton of money. We've been saying for years, you know, the Trump administration was kind of known for saying, NATO, you got to put up on your own. Like, we're happy to help, but we can't be responsible for everything. So Americans have by and large said, happy to help, but we don't want to bear all the costs. Well, we've been bearing, you know, almost all the costs. It's basically a war with the US. It's our military, it's our resources, it's their mismanagement of our resources. But you look even like beginning in December, I think it fell into under a majority of just Americans, not even Republicans, but Americans are no longer 
in majority support of the kind of activity that we've had. And it just keeps going down, particularly among Republicans and particularly among younger Republicans who just do not have, you know, any fondness for the George W. Bush foreign policy that failed so, you know, unequivocally. So I saw this um, interesting hit on Ron DeSantis from the Daily Beast this morning on Twitter. And um, it was all about how DeSantis was a difficult on the campaign trail. And there's a like quote, that's what we call like a pullout quote and that you on Twitter, you know, you put in the link and then you put like a interesting quote to kind of whet the appetite. And the quote was about how <clears throat> I'm not kidding. In 2019, Ron DeSantis ate a cup of pudding with three fingers. Mm. Literally, that was <laughs> that was that's journalism. Can you imagine going to Columbia School of Journalism and that that's what you're doing. So anytime these attacks against Ron DeSantis from the from the mainstream media, which I think they're very afraid of him, no doubt not. They're not afraid of Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or whoever is Chris Christie running. Probably. Why not? Um, but that 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 th- three fingers and eight pudding with three fingers. It's just like, all right, is this it's like a little teenage bitch fight or something. I think there was anyway. a new article that came out that said how Ron DeSantis didn't have any friends in Congress. Like, is that supposed to be a bad thing? <laughs> is he the Ted Cruz of the Congress? Like, poor Ted Cruz didn't have any friends in the Senate. <laughs> and he had to eat lunch by himself, like, in the Senate. Those were reports. I, I'm just re- re- repeating that. But I don't – I actually don't think that true because I think he was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, wasn't he? So I think he did have friends. He was in the Freedom Caucus, I think. He was kind of unremarkable in Congress, to be honest. I mean, but it's being in Congress, you can't really do anything. It's very hard to get anything done in Congress. You you don't get to really have that executive power you see in Florida. But anyway, um, back to the Ukraine. I had asked Molly earlier how and would love to get your opinion, Julie, on how do you see this going to end in Ukraine? Or do you see it ending unless we change leadership? Molly, go ahead. What do you think? no, I'm asking, Julie, I'm asking you. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. I see this escalating. I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. I think it will be a major issue for uh, 2024 and um, obviously the primary as well. So that's where I see it headed. I think it's going in a dangerous direction when you have Zelensky basically warning that if we don't do what he wants, we're going to end up sending our young men and women in uniform to defend that corrupt clown. Um, you know, I, I don't see a lot of pushback, but Molly has a much closer view to this. So oh, I mean, it's kind of hard because you don't really know based on the reporting what's accurate and what's not. It seems like Russia has done pretty well at accomplishing its aims to get, you know, a land bridge and get the area that, that always sort of made sense that they were going for. They obviously failed right at the outset for their attempt to go after Kiev, and which was probably in a they probably had the idea that they could depose the government there and get a friendlier government in to make things go easier for them. But I'm more concerned about all the other effects. Like, contrary to what Biden and McConnell have said, we have not united the world against Russia. We've actually helped Russia get some new relationships in the Middle East with China. The relationship with China has grown so much stronger. And going back to Nixon and Kissinger, we had this idea that you don't want the Soviet Union and China to be too close because together they can 
that can take us on in a way that they can't if they're divided. That's why we kind of got friendly with China for a long time. Now that China's rising and Russia's not, you know, you don't want to bring Russia together with China for the same reasons as that triangulation doctrine in the 70s. Well, we've gotten them really close together. India has not come on board, and that's a major trading partner. So I worry that we have strengthened Russia. Their GDP is growing. At the same time, we're making ourselves less energy independent. And you hope it doesn't spiral out of control. Like, I don't see it going nuclear anytime soon. I don't see it becoming quite a World War III anytime soon. But, you know, events can change. And if with the banking crisis, also, it makes it like, let's imagine that we are no longer the reserve currency of the world, which, you know, I'm not, it's not like a thing that might happen tomorrow, but we have a weakening economy. We have a less stable financial system. And if we were to lose that status, it would really make things quite fraught. So there's a lot to be concerned about. Switching gears a little, I know we were talking about Congress doing nothing. Um, There seems to be some uh, percolating criticism about the pace of investigations from House Republicans. They have a lot on their plate. I know James Comer uh, is sort of pushing uh, forward with the investigation into the Biden crime family. Um, but Molly and Liz, what do you think about where we're headed? Uh, the Weaponization Committee, I believe, has only held one meeting so far. Uh, what are you guys hearing? Because you're you're closer to it in terms of staffing up uh, a schedule and uh, you know where uh, where House Republicans are going on uh, a number of fronts here. You can go, Molly. Uh, well, I don't know a ton, but I do think. You know, you look at the corrupt J6 committee and that had like 100 staffers and how much, like $20 million or something at its disposal. And the weaponization committee, I think, has a very tiny fraction of both of those numbers. And you can't do much without the staff and resources. And so it makes me just a little nervous about how much they can accomplish. On the other hand, I've been fairly pleased at how they're you know, taking advantage of their majority, the subpoenas that are being issued, just the aggressiveness. They're not acting like just because they have a small majority that they can't go hard. And they seem to have the support of the speaker, which is good, too. So I don't know. I've just kind of mixed views. I was pleasantly surprised by the weaponization hearing that we had last week with Matt Taby and uh Michael Schellenberger, because I personally enjoy the hearings when the Democrats really, really clown themselves. And that was the case in this hearing. Um, I guess they got together and thought the best strategy was to personally attack Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, who really have not only credentials as journalists, but they're they're especially Tybee, who is just a real bona fide leftist. You know, if you go through his work, there's no way you would read his stuff over the years and be like, yeah, this guy's on the right wing. You know, he's a Trumpaloo. He's a right wing. Michael Schellenberger also, he's just a real rare. Both of them are pretty rare that, especially Schellenberger, who is just um, makes a good faith effort to do investigations. And I know that he's done a lot of stuff where he came out on a side he didn't expect to when he started. He's done a lot of work on the homeless, being kind of on the left himself. And so the Democrats' plan was just come out and call these make, call these people like dangerous right-wingers and insult them. And I know Matt Taby had a soundbite going around. I saw him say it when the majority, the ranking member, Plackett, I think she's from the Virgin Islands or something, said 
called him a so-called journalist. And he's been like, I've wrote 10 books and I've had five New York Times bestsellers. Like, I'm not a so-called journalist lady. Um, it was just really the Democrats kind of throwing mud on them personally. And the Republicans allowed them to say a lot that needed to get out, that people who don't follow them or follow their substacks needed to hear about what was going on behind the scenes at Twitter and the relationship with the government. So I do think that's good. My my disappointment is, like Molly said, these committees are grossly understaffed compared to the Democrats. They had on like an all-star jamboree. It was their hearings were produced by a television producer. They had, I don't know, a hundred lawyers. And the Republicans staff is just pales in comparison to that. And these are such serious issues. They need much larger staff. And I hope that they realize how important it is. And I would like them to be more, um, you know, out there with it and aggressive publicly about it, because I think that the activist class and the grassroots, the people who are really burned by this also don't don't take them seriously you know, because they think it's another failure theater, which we've had so much of. So I'm hoping that they continue this and they're aggressive and they're really good about promoting the stuff. But it's such a huge job. I mean, they're going after COVID, all of the stuff about COVID, the cover-ups, the mandates. They're going after, I don't I don't even know, I think there's three main buckets. They're going after the Twitter and the weaponization of government which I think includes those things with the censorship and what else are they going after? Do you remember what's the other, um, about maybe the Biden family? I know Comer, but he's in the Senate. No, he's in the house. He's doing, uh, the Biden family. Yeah. Afghanistan. That's another, I mean, good grief. You know, there's just so many, so much to go through. Um, and they really have two years to do it, assuming that they, if they don't get the house again, or maybe they will, or we get a Republican president, which would make things a little easier because certainly the Republicans don't have cooperation from the DOJ. I mean, the DOJ itself is, which would normally be, I mean, constitutionally, it's supposed to be considered like a tool also for people who lie to Congress and cover things up when this stuff is recognized. And then it's referred to the DOJ. Now nothing happens because the DOJ is part of the problem. So maybe under a Republican president, um, there would be a better attorney general and better appointments at the DOJ. And then there would be some consequences. I'd, I don't know. That's my opinion. I do want to just say real quick that one thing that the House Republicans did that was smarter than the Senate Republicans is they basically started working on what they were going to work on a year before they got the majority. That way they kind of knew right at the outset who they were going to subpoena what the grounds would be. They actually did it already. They already requested the documents like more than a year ago. And the Biden administration said that they were just not going to respond to them until they had the majority. So as soon as they got it, they just put them out right again. And they were much less patient about waiting a year to see if they could get a response. And you compare that with the Senate, which they didn't have any oversight planned. They have kind of not done anything to even articulate what might be of concern to Republican senators, thereby not really giving a reason for people to vote for Republican senators. And turned out they didn't get the majority either anyway, so it didn't matter. But like there's just they're very weak, very impotent on the Senate side compared to the House side, which is just interesting to watch. 
Molly, what's your sense and Liz too on um, now here we are eight days, nine days after Tucker released the new video about January 6th. Um, the people, the reporters, the corporate reporters who I follow are in full-blown panic mode. Now DOJ is releasing new videos with, related to old arrests or new arrests. Uh, they're in just in a manic mode on Twitter posting new video clips that they think are contradicting uh, the big shift, I think, that we've seen in that narrative. How do you sense that impact? And do you think that Congress, that Republicans need to establish their own January 6th committee? So I can't even imagine how you feel about what's happened in the last week, because even as someone who's just been like reading you religiously, when I saw the first night of the Tucker videos, I thought they were really interesting, but they weren't shocking. Like they matched with what you had been reporting. And so I was kind of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm glad he's doing this, but it's not shocking. The next day when all hell broke loose, I realized it was extremely significant what he did because the narrative control that the propaganda press and their allies in the Democrat Party had over this event was so complete that these videos were actually shocking to a lot of people. Like they really had been led to believe the craziest thing about this, this event. And you saw that by the coordinated pushback. And I'm so glad you mentioned Mitch McConnell, who never can never be bothered to like articulate a Republican position, went out to CNN and he had a prop, a prop piece of paper that he waved in front of the cameras to condemn <laughs> anybody showing anything other than what Nancy Pelosi wanted shown. That's what Mitch McConnell did. He didn't complain about the politicization, the exploitation, how this um, opposition to a riot had let so-called, you know, how they an insurrection, how this had led to abridgment of First Amendment freedoms, a rejection of the idea that you should have a decent defense, how that's like a constitutional ideal, um, lack of due process. No, he didn't do any of that. He was like, I got to I got to defend my girl, Nancy Pelosi, and my real girl, Liz Cheney, from any new information being shown. And so then when you saw it being joked about in the Oscars, you know, uh, that hack idiot unfunny comedian i don't remember his name but he's like um anybody can edit 44,000 hours of footage into looking like it's a peaceful tour of the capitol when you're having to respond to it in the oscars like you know the left was freaking out and so they're desperate i just thought it was like really amazing it made me much happier about what tucker had done and it made me realize just how much more courageous he was and then you had like mike Pence say that it was disgusting that Tucker had shown a different viewpoint than what the official narrative was, which is just, to me, disqualifying. He praised the corporate media for how they had, he said that because of the corporate press, they had like saved democracy. This guy is running for the Republican nomination and he doesn't know, he so doesn't know what time it is. He doesn't know what, you know, millennium it is. And it just is very clarifying what we've gone through here. Well, I, I am I'm not really a fan of Mike Pence, and I do feel like some of the uh, rioting could be placed on his decision to not announce 
way in advance that he had no intention of doing what Trump said he could and instead dropped it at the last minute, which I think inflamed passions. I think Julie agrees with me on this. But one of the things that was very interesting um, in that in those videos and just the stark example of the QAnon shaman, I love saying that because it's so wacky, the QAnon shaman, watching him just kind of wander around and having doors open for him and have him help tell people to get out. Once the cops said to leave, he was like, you know, shuffling people out, out of the building is that the narrative has always been, oh, well, X amount of people have pled guilty, you know, or, you know, or we're were guilty of it. And people don't realize a lot of these people didn't have hearings. They were immediately bullied out of the gate by the DOJ and, and really took a plea deal. And I love watching the mainstream media and even these liberal lawyers pretend that nobody pleads out on anything, <clears throat> you know, that people don't plead to a lesser crime just because the, the battle isn't worth it, especially for a lot of the people who were there on January 6th, these are these are hardworking Americans. These aren't fancy white shoed rich people that have corporate lawyers on speed dial. You know, they're going to have a public defender and it's probably going to be a public defender with 500 other people. And the public defender is going to want to get this case off of their stack of stuff to do. So it was good to have that contrast of the QAnon shaman just wandering around. And yet he's in there for four years because he had to make a deal. You know, these people aren't going through an actual hearing where the prosecution is being forced to prove that they're guilty of the charges. Now, I'm not saying they wouldn't win because the D.C. jury is garbage. But still, I think that was one of the main stark realities that came out with this video. What do you what do you think, Julie? I think that Jacob Chansley became to the political prisoners what Ray Epps was to potential agitators. Um, you know, Ray Epps has sort of been this figure no one can explain. The January 6th committee and media defended him. He remains uncharged 26 months plus later, and he has raised a lot of suspicions in people's minds. Well, who was he? What was he doing? Why is he not charged or convicted? On the flip side, you have Jacob Chansley. I think people needed a face, a sympathetic figure, which Jacob certainly is. I mean, he's a Navy veteran. He suffers from severe mental health issues. The same judge who denied his release and kept him in solitary confinement ordered a mental health evaluation of Jacob in the summer of 2021, nonetheless kept him incarcerated until DOJ tormented him into a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to obstruction of an official proceeding. We could see by the video, Jacob Chansley obstructed nothing um, and was led around, not arrested. Uh, we have video at American Greatness we obtained in the spring of 2021 that shows Jacob talking to this officer, Robichaud, Capitol Police officer, who said, we're not against you. Don't do anything violent. You have to protest peacefully, which he actually did. Um, <clears throat> so I think he became a sympathetic figure. And to Molly's point, the meltdown, the hysteria that was unleashed the very next morning, you have the Senate majority leader stomping his way to the Senate floor to condemn this and demand that, you know, the Murdochs take Tucker off the air. So I think it really was a pivotal moment. Um, but look, shamefully, and of course, you had Republican senators join Mitch McConnell in that uh, the same 
a lot of same Republicans who gave DOJ a $3.5 billion raise in the omnibus, omnibus bill, including and the FBI building. Don't forget the brand new FBI building they're getting, too. What is really alarming, though, none of this is slowing this Department of Justice, Lisa Monaco, Deputy Attorney General, who's really pulling the strings. And of course, Matthew Graves, who is the DCUS attorney, a Biden campaign advisor, Biden appointee, uh, who is handling every single prosecution. What was confirmed yesterday is something we've been reporting for months, is that Matthew Graves has warned both the Federal Public Defender's Office and the courts that they expect to double the number of current criminal defendants, which is now over a thousand um, criminal cases, mostly misdemeanors, by the way, um, but that they were going to bring that number up to 2000 or more. This week, I have watched an escalation of arrests and charges. The DOJ and FBI are announcing every day, including this week, a couple from um, Indiana, a couple who was arrested for civil disorder and then for misdemeanors. The civil disorder charge is particularly offensive because this is the same charge that was levied against 2020 rioters that, you know, all back then all the civil liberties um, uh, advocates and criminal justice reform advocates said was racist and it was wrong and it was never intended for this way. Um, but now this is the newest uh, felony charge that DOJ, not new, they've been charging this for two years, but it seems like they're adding that to what would otherwise be considered misdemeanor trespassing cases to make, because Graves wants to inflame, inflate the number of felony charges, because right now, according to DOJ's own statistics, the overwhelming um, common charges parading in the Capitol, class B, low-level misdemeanor. He wants to inflate the felony charge so this becomes another talking point for Democrats um, uh, next next year uh, or Biden campaign, uh, Biden campaign and Democrats. So um, none of this is going away, um, which is why uh, I think we need a new committee. The American people, for the most part, realize they have been misled uh, by this committee and by the media. And I think that they want some accountability. They really do want truth and transparency, whether House Republicans, I know they're outgunned and outmatched and, you know, resources are, are you know, being diverted elsewhere. But to me, and I think, you know, Molly might agree with this and Liz, that this is becoming a top issue, I think, with the base. And they're going to force Republicans at some point to confront this, whether they want to or not. Agree. I think it's going to be a huge campaign issue. Um, for the Republican primary. And <clears throat> that is not good for the Nikki Haley's and the Mike, especially Mike Pence. Honestly, why is he running? Like, does he think he could win? I, and and the other, the, and oftentimes a lot of people will run for president because they're really auditioning for a cabinet position. Mike Pence is not going to get a cabinet position under certainly not under a Trump president. And I don't think he would get one under a DeSantis presidency. But I don't know why some of these people are running, but they are on the wrong side of this issue so far. I guess Vivek Ramaswamy, we haven't talked, we've got to mention him when we're talking about candidates, but they all have to have the right position on this because, Julie, you're right, more and more people. I think Republicans were always skeptical, but the longer this has gone on, and especially with Tucker's footage, that people are really 
are, are realizing that they've been sold a bill of goods. And we're all primed for this stuff, to be honest, after the Russia collusion hoax, which we all know happened. So go ahead, Molly, you want to say something? Just want to praise Julie here because I, I, you know, having participated in that Russia collusion hoax, the corporate media were, everyone in America kind of knew it was stupid, but the corporate media still pushed that false narrative for years. And it managed to convince a lot of Democrats that there was actual Russia collusion, that the 2016 election had been stolen. It caused so many problems for Republicans. But you did have a small handful of journalists who really worked hard to push against that. And so Republicans didn't believe it, even if Democrats did. You take the J6 situation, and it was so obvious from the get-go how this was going to be exploited. And the vast majority of Republicans and even the vast, vast, like almost all journalists who should have known better basically did nothing in response. And I think the proof um, that this was not a good approach to take politically was in the midterm elections where you had just completely one narrative that dominated everything, basically with the exception of one brave journalist, Julie Kelly, who against all kind of opposition, all kind of hatred, you know, just it took courage that literally no other journalist in America has. And she is to be commended. You are to be commended, Julie. And the fact that last week was this big narrative switch only really worked because you had educated so many Americans that what they had been told was not a really accurate understanding of the event or its aftermath. And you could not possibly get enough awards for your journalism, your patriotism, your love of neighbor. Um, I know I know they won't be coming anyway because you're not lying about these things, but uh, <laughs> you deserve like every award in the book. Well, Molly, that yeah. is so overly kind and I appreciate that so much but I do <clears throat> want to commend you too and I've said this you know I'll say this to you and I've said it to Cash Patel and Devin Nunes but for watching your coverage and your courageous coverage and you said a handful I mean there were a handful of people who were uncovering Russiagate from the start um that sort of was like my framework uh, for realizing that they were capable of doing what they did on January 6th. So, um, you, I, you know, you were you were a trailblazer on that. You still I mean, you got a lot of hate and others who were covering it and still to this yeah, but, day do. But you were right. So isn't it fun when you're not motivated by love from The New York Times, like how vindicating it is when you're shown to have been right? Like, isn't it just awesome? <laughs> <laughs> You know, my guy at Politico, Julie, that Kyle Cheney guy, that other, he's the other one covering um, J6, J6, and he is just awful. Well, I will say, I think the difference, surprisingly, is I do have sort, I, I mean, I'm not going to say a relationship, but I talk to Kyle, I talk to, uh, you know, the New York Times reporter on this, even Ryan Miley, who I really, uh, I think is just the worst propagandist of all of this. I don't talk with them, but we don't have this, I mean, we ha have a combative relationship, um, but it's not, I don't want to, it's not vindicating, but I think in a weird way, they respect the work that I'm doing because they're willing to engage and share some of the stuff that they have. 
Politico, Kyle is Kyle. Politico has done some good reporting. In fact, they were the first ones who talked about the 14,000 hours of videotape. But back to being vindicated, I'm gratified for the people whose lives are being destroyed. And I think that that's been my motivating factor from the very beginning is watching what's been happening to these innocent people who can't defend themselves. Um, so they have some hope now. I hope that it's for, you know, their motions being filed in court um, on behalf of defendants who want access to all of this video, the 44,000 hours, which is the 24 hour cycle of that day, not the noon to eight o'clock, which the FBI had, which is 14,000 hours. So anyway, I think we're going to learn a lot more. There's even more coming out in some of these important trials. Uh, especially related to FBI misconduct and uh, informants. But anyway, Molly, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Julie, why don't Julie, why don't you give us a brief update on the latest with the FBI and the Whitmer Fed napping? Because we had some explosive developments. And I think that happened right at the end of our podcast last week. So we didn't get to talk about it and also the and and what's subsequently happened. So why don't you tell our listeners, give our listeners a quick summary of the bombshell last week in the Whitmer Fed napping and then how that's been handled by the Wisconsin, Michigan court. I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, no, this is about the Proud Boys trial, right? Yes. Whitmer? Okay, I'm sorry. So oh, no, yeah. no one that's wants right. to cover the Proud Boys either, right? Because they're icky people who, you know, are domestic terrorists, according to Chris Gray. But this is really one of the worst trials and cases because with the exception of one man, they're all on trial for seditious conspiracy. They do not face violent charges. They did not bring weapons. They did not attack police officers, but yet they're charged with seditious conspiracy. So what came out last week was really explosive. The FBI, one of the case agents, Nicole Miller, was on the stand. She had produced a spreadsheet of Jenks material, which is any communications related to her investigation of the case. Well, what happened, she had, you know, 25 rows that she said when she's talking to other agents in the link system, which is the platform where FBI agents um, communicate with each other. I think this is how Peter Strzok got busted, by the way. Um <clears throat> But at any rate, one of the uh, researchers on the defense team hit a tab and uncovered thousands of rows of messages that had not that they were trying to conceal from the jury. So as Nicholas Smith, who is, you know, cross-examining this agent, confronting her about messages that talk about doctoring a report related to a confidential human source, we know that there were probably more than a dozen FBI informants embedded in the Proud Boys, just like the Whitmer Fednapping. Uh, one message relates to destroying 338 items of evidence that an FBI supervisor had told another agent to destroy. More egregiously is uh, the confession in these texts that the FBI was spying on communications between incarcerated defendants and their attorneys. And they were using that information. They were passing it on to prosecutors who are handling the case. So. As soon as Nick Smith, the attorney, was really digging in, Judge Tim Kelly, who was an absolute disgrace to the bench, who worked as a DOJ creature, who worked for years for the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, same office handling all of these cases, you know, his buddies, abruptly cuts off cross-examination, excuses the jury so they cannot hear the line of questioning. DOJ comes back, says, oh, these are classified or sensitive 
I'm sure Molly would uh, will love this, classified or sensitive uh, communications. We have to scrub this spreadsheet. The judge orders the spreadsheet not to be shared, not to be reviewed by the defense, not to be downloaded, gives it to the DOJ. They unilaterally come back the next day, have gotten rid of 80 rows of messages, um, claim that the reference to destroyed evidence had nothing to do with this case, um, gave some lame excuse about the doctrine, but then came back and said, if you are an incarcerated defendant, you automatically waive your Sixth Amendment rights for attorney-client privilege, meaning the government can spy on you, can share whatever you're talking about, including strategy at trial with the prosecutors who are going to be putting you on trial. Um, and Judge Kelly let the government get away with all of this. He refused to let the jury hear about these messages and limited cross-examination on the doctored uh, FBI informant report. That's what just a little glimpse into what these defendants are up against. It's not just the DOJ who is so corrupt in rigging these trials. It is with full complicity of these judges. I have a piece up on American greatness. I'm going to be covering it. Um, also next week, because the government finally is going to rest its case in chief after eight or nine weeks. And the defense now is going to present their defense again, ham hamstrung by Judge Kelly, who get this told defense to vet their questions about confidential human sources with the prosecution before the judge allows the defense to ask any witnesses. It's it's just an absolute um like clown show in these courthouses. We need to be able to move venues for these ca these cases. Um, the idea that these these people, these defendants are going to be facing a jury of their peers or even engage in a process that's related to where they're located is it's just outrageous. There's also the issue, like if you remember in the war on terror, there were all these people that were captured on the battle fields where they were taken to Gitmo and every single major liberal law firm donated yeah. legal services to these, you know, actual accused terrorists and enemy combatants. And they had a project, I think they called it the Hamilton project, you know, all about the importance of securing a good defense, like how that made you a better person. If you made sure our judicial system was strong and advocated for even like the worst among us. And one of the things that happened after the J6 thing was that every Republican attorney worth anything, like every Republican attorney with any kind of cojones, started getting targeted with disbarment complaints in states across the country that they had to start defending against, which didn't just serve to take them off the field. It also served as a warning that anyone else who ever wanted to have a career, you know, that the regime was now going after, again, constitutional protections regarding defense. And there were no major Republican law firms to come into that breach. And a big thing that would help right now is just to have like, if there were any decent, I don't care where they are on the political pers pro political spectrum, but any decent legal scholar kind of weighing in and saying, you know, even like if it was someone who's like, I really hate what happened that day. And I really do think these people need to be prosecuted. But the way it's happening here is unconscionable and it is a threat to our entire country and our legal system. I think that would really be helpful right now. And I just hope there is just like anybody with courage to come out and do that, knowing how much pushback they may get. 
Well, you see plenty of legal people um, concerned about the Antifa uh, stuff down, going on in Georgia with the new cop building that they're the new cop training ground that they're building. Um, when a lawyer at the Southern Poverty Law Center was arrested for terrorism, for engaging in violence. And then all of our criminal justice uh, institutions that are usually so vocal about the defense, the rights of the defendants are back in action again concerning this gentleman from the Southern Poverty Law, Law Center, this accused domestic terrorist, but completely silence on the railroading of all of these J6. Um, this is just another example of how the progressive left doesn't really believe the things that they say they do. They just use them as a power lever. You know, they don't really care about free speech. I mean, where's the ACLU um, on the issues of political protest? I mean, they're missing in action. All of these other criminal justice reform groups that are constantly talking about stopping executions of murderers because they're, you know, mentally ill or you, you hear them. There's always complaining about treatment in prison. Meanwhile, all of these J6ers, you just don't see the same thing. And that lets you know that these people are not principled. This is well, just they, a power war. Could I argue, though, I, I think it's not that they're hypocrites. It's that they believe in hierarchy and they want power right. and control. And so when they were doing it Previously, that was because they wanted power and control. So there's like, it's not principle, but it's consistency. And that the problem then becomes that people on the right, no matter how many decades this goes on, keep acting like they expect something different from the left that they will never get. Well, we didn't even get to the banking crisis, which I don't really know that much about. <laughs> but before well, we wrap up, I banking institutions are failing. That's it. Next. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Buy gold. <laughs> Buy gold and guns and ammo and batteries. Molly, what's coming up uh, next week in Washington? What, what's going on? What are you keeping your eye on? That's a really good question, Julie. What's coming going on for me is I'll be hiking uh, elsewhere. So I'm not. <laughs> good for you. She's escaping. <laughs> She's escaped. Well, we won't try to hunt you down then. We won't follow you. <laughs> God bless you. Everybody needs a break from this. In all seriousness, I have to get out every once in a while and just hike because it clears my head. And I'm like a hippie at heart, probably. So I just need to, you know, commune with nature. Well, thanks. Thank you all for listening to our podcast. <clears throat> if you haven't already, subscribe Happy Hour with Julie and Liz on iTunes and give us five stars. I think we have five stars. Why were we Did not? you know that? By the way, shouldn't we be? drinking wait maybe you guys are drinking and i didn't I just julie didn't. might be it's so early we should but but who could blame her to be honest um if we tape later i am drinking we should, uh, Coke Zero. We should do that next time molly oh i will i would think that'd be hilarious and another thing <laughs> it goes for like four hours Mitch McConnell. <laughs> let me tell you Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe on iTunes. Julie, will we be here next week? Yes, we will. All right. We will be here next week. Have a great week and we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.